Good morning, everybody. We're starting right on time. It's 9 o'clock. I'm pretty, I'm pretty impressed. Thank you uh, to Ambassador Froman for getting here on time. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Dan Eikenson. I am the director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies uh, here at Cato. Um, I'm, I want to welcome you, and I also want to welcome people who may be watching through our live stream or who may be watching uh, via C-SPAN on C-SPAN 3. I would like to suggest that if anybody has commentary or questions, especially for Ambassador Froman, since he's not going to have time to take questions after, he after his address, to um, post them on Twitter uh, and use the um, hashtag uh, CatoTPP. And we'll, we'll do our best to respond to your comments or questions and maybe post a blog post tomorrow or next week uh, to, to be responsive to those. So the title of today's event is should free traders support the Trans-Pacific Partnership? And well, that seems like a rhetorical question to many, I imagine. You know, of course, free traders would support the TPP or free, free trade agreements. Um, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, it's uh, free, free, free trade and free trade agreements are not the same animals. Um, and we're going to get into those distinctions a little bit on the first panel. But for now, Suffice it to say that the free traders uh, at the Cato Institute uh, have found, found their way past differences uh, and, and supported trade liberalization, however incrementally uh, it was delivered in the past. When I joined Cato in the year 2000, uh, the United States had FTAs with three countries, Israel, Canada, and Mexico. <clears throat> Today, we have agreements with 20 countries, and each free trade agreement uh, that, that produced uh, those new partners uh, was supported by my former colleagues at Cato and myself. So we have found our way to supporting these kinds of agreements. Um, after a fairly rigorous analysis, my Cato trade colleagues uh, and I uh, have come to the conclusion that we support the TPP. And uh, there are things that we like about it, some things that we are a little uncertain of or not as uh, impressed by. Uh, and there are some things about which we're sort of ambivalent. Uh, but on par, there is more to like about the TPP than to dislike. The deal is net liberalizing. Uh, it will expand Americans' economic freedoms. Uh, and, and, and we hope that it will be ratified this year. So on the first panel this morning, we will discuss uh, the pros and cons of the TPP and describe our, our scoring method. Um, we did a paper um, assessing each chapter. And we'll go into some of the details there. Um, so the title of that first panel is called uh, Grading the TPP, What's to Like and Not Like uh, About the Agreement. And the panel is composed of my trade colleagues, uh, Bill Watson uh, and Simon Lester, uh, as well as Derek Scissors, a resident scholar from American Enterprise Institute. He has some deeper reservations about the TPP, and I'm sure he'll be happy to share them. Uh, on the second panel, we will address uh, the question of TPP ratification. It's titled Obstacles to Ratification, uh, If Not Now, Then When? So moderating that panel will be my colleague, Dan Pearson. Uh, and he will be engaging with Washington trade policy icon and dear friend of the Cato Trade Center, former USTR Clayton Yider, uh, as well as Phil Levy, who's been at trade and economic policy for a long time uh, in the Bush administration and his Council of Economic Advisors, uh, then at the American Enterprise Institute. Now he's a senior fellow on the global economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. And also on that panel is uh, Yir Ule, who is Director of International Trade for JT International. And he's going to share his deep knowledge of, of one of the more substantive obstacles to ratification 
known as the infamous tobacco carve-out. So before uh, introducing our distinguished keynote speaker, um, I'd like to put this event into some broader context. As you're probably aware, uh, there is a bit of animus uh, toward trade and globalization these days, uh, and especially the, the TPP. And frankly, I think that anger is, is misplaced um, or intentionally misdirected by politicians who see opportunity in blaming foreigners uh, and their products for everything that ails Americans. Uh, but we should remember and we should remind our friends and neighbors that trade plays one role. Uh, trade's role is to expand the size of the economic pie. And trade liberalization makes that easier. Uh, it makes it easier for trade to play that role uh, by removing barriers to trade uh, we, and enabling economic integration, greater scope for specialization, uh, and economies of scale. And I think trade really has fulfilled that role in trade liberalization, whether through trade agreements or unilateral reforms, uh, has helped trade fulfill that role. But questions about the wealth created uh, by trade, how it's distributed, whether and how quickly workers who lose jobs find new ones and at what wages, should not burden trade any more than it burdens technology or changing consumer tastes and demands, which are the primary causes of job churn uh, in the United States. The purpose of trade is to expand the size of the pie, not to ensure that every citizen is insulated from changes that ensue. Uh, you don't hear cries for Apple to compensate people whose jobs were made obsolete by the apps on our phones. Uh, our political candidates, I think, would be more useful to the electorate if they were to offer proposals to reduce systemic frictions in the labor market. That's the real problem. Uh, how about ideas to incentivize business to hire people, uh, to hire people to train them in exchange for a commitment that they'll work for them for some period of time? How about reforming the corporate tax system, uh, a system that currently uh, discourages repatriation of an estimated $2 trillion of profits of U.S. multinationals abroad. That, that investment can come back and, and create value-added activity in the jobs that go with it. How about curbing excessive and superfluous regulations uh, that raise the cost of establishing and maintaining businesses without any marginal improvements in social safety, environmental, or health outcomes? How about permanently eliminating import duties on intermediate goods uh, to reduce production costs and make U.S.-based businesses more globally competitive? How about advoc uh, advocating the retirement of protectionist occupational licensing practices? We should also be encouraging voters to look to the states for evidence of which policies work best to attract investment and create jobs. And there's a reason uh, that, uh, that, that more jobs are created per capita in places like South Carolina and Tennessee than in Michigan and Ohio. So there are really no circumstances under which it makes sense to curtail the growth of the size of the pie. Uh, nothing to do, that can't possibly be considered a legitimate aim of public policy. But that is what the candidates are offering us instead of real solutions. The problem to solve is not trade. I've often wondered aloud, sometimes to uh, the discomfort of people in the room, uh, why President Obama didn't challenge Nancy Pelosi's and Harry Reid's anti-trade perspectives, which were held stranglehold over the Democratic caucus in Congress why I didn't do that more rigorously. I've often wondered out loud, sometimes to the discomfort of people in the room, uh, why President Obama didn't challenge TPP co-architect Hillary Clinton when she decided she was against the TPP. I, I think those decisions to yield to politics and, and the political status quo represented missed opportunities uh, to make the case for trade from the highest level. Missed opportunities, I think, that have made Ambassador Froman's job more difficult. 
uh, missed opportunities that jeopardize all of the hard work done by Ambassador Froman and his team at the USTR on TPP and TTIP and other trade initiatives. Perhaps that's not the most cheerful way to uh, introduce our keynote speaker. <laughs> but <laughs> to kick off this morning's events, we have a special guest who knows more about the TPP uh, than probably any other American. It is really a real honor and privilege uh, to introduce the United States Trade Representative, Michael Froman. Uh, Ambassador Froman has led uh, the Obama administration's trade policy agenda at USTR since 2013, uh, but he's been with the administration since the very beginning in 2009 um, in for helping uh, the president formulate international economic policy from different positions in other agencies. Uh, Ambassador Froman brought home the TPP agreement last fall, and it was signed by the parties in February 2016, and if it is to be ratified this year, uh, implementing legislation will need to be introduced very soon. So without further ado, uh, to discuss those plans and, and why the TPP is a good deal for America, uh, please help me welcome USTR Ambassador Michael Froman. Uh, well, thanks very much, Dan. And, uh, you know, I, I'm feel a little bit like uh, you know, one of these isn't like the other, uh, you know, being, coming, coming from the administration here. Uh, there are a number of things, obviously, we don't fully agree on, but I think here is an area where we might well uh, agree on um, the importance of moving this forward. And so I welcome this opportunity and thank uh, Dan for the invitation and the opportunity to, to meet with you. And I am delighted to see uh, one of my predecessors here, Clayton Yoiter, in the front, uh, in the front, uh, in the front row here. One of the great things about this job is how bipartisan it is. And I've gotten great advice and support from all of my predecessors. And I'm very grateful for Ambassador Yorder for being here. I want to thank the trade team at, uh, at, at Cato, uh, Dan, Simon, Bill, Dan, for bringing their deep expertise on these issues uh, to the debate. We welcome this report that's being issued today and look forward to reading it and the independent analysis that Cato does on, on this issue. TPP will be the largest trade policy advance in more than 20 years on a wide range of important policy goals, with the results very well, the, the results very well mesh with principles common to conservatives, liberals, and libertarians alike. If you're interested in reducing taxes, promoting market-based rather than subsidy-based competition, Internet freedom and entrepreneurialism, there's a lot to like in this agreement. For example, TPP will eliminate more than 18,000 taxes or tariffs on our exports. It will increase the standard of living of especially low and middle income Americans who spend a higher proportion of their disposable income on consumer goods. And it will help maintain the competitiveness of US manufacturers who rely on imported inputs and components. An American company selling cosmetics or cars to Vietnam will find new opportunities as tariffs of 20 to 70% vanish. The proprietor of an Asian grocery store across the river in Arlington will save herself and her customers money as US tariffs drop on straw mushrooms and baby corn. TPP will be the first agreement since the Uruguay round in 1994 to cut a subsidy, prohibiting fishery subsidies that contribute to overfishing. And that's a historic achievement, both for the removal of a distortive practice and as a conservation measure. This is the first agreement to take on the issues of the digital economy 
preserving the integrity of the internet and the right to move data freely across borders, and prohibiting efforts to require the localization of infrastructure and other forms of digital protectionism. TPP will, for the first time, take a comprehensive approach to imposing disciplines on state-owned enterprises to make sure that when they compete against our private firms, they do so on a fair and level playing field. TPP will support small businesses through its trade facilitation measures, its efforts to harmonize customs procedures and make countries' regulatory processes more transparent. These are just a few of TPP's highlights. And there have been a number of studies done on the benefits of TPP, from the Peterson Institute to the International Trade Commission to the American Farm Bureau. They've all found that TPP will support more well-paying export-related jobs, add consumer purchasing power, and spur economic growth here at home. Both the Peterson Institute and the ITC, which conducted the two major modeling studies of the agreement, both find that the majority of the benefits of TPP will go to workers through higher wages. Now, there's a great deal of anxiety among the American people, evident in the current election dynamic, not to mention across much of the developed world, and Dan referred to that in his introduction. There's concern that other countries don't follow the same rules we do, but instead act unfairly, that the benefits of growth have been broadly shared, that the system is rigged in favor of the few. It's important that we not ignore these concerns. They are real and legitimate. The question is what to do about them. Most economists will tell you that technology has more to do with the changing nature of the workforce than globalization, but they both contribute. The problem is we don't get to vote on technology. Nobody votes on the next generation of computers or on whether robots will be deployed in the workplace. Nor do we really get to vote on globalization. Globalization is a fact made possible by the containerization of shipping, the spread of broadband, the opening of countries like China and Eastern Europe that used to be closed to the global economy and are now part of it. Globalization is a force. You can't just wish it away or put the genie back in the bottle. What we do get to vote on are trade agreements. So they become a magnet of concern, a scapegoat for a broader set of factors that contribute to economic anxiety. But it's important not to conflate trade agreements with globalization. Globalization has impacted the workplace. Trade agreements can be part of the solution. Trade agreements allow us to shape globalization to our advantage. They're the vehicle through which we help write the rules of the road for the global trading system and do so in a way that reflect our interests and our values. Just yesterday, the International Trade Commission released a study on the effects of US trade agreements since 1984, when we negotiated our first FTA with Israel. It found that, in aggregate, our bilateral and regional agreements have added American jobs and increased wages, given consumers lower prices and greater product variety, with the largest purchasing power gains going to low- and middle-income Americans, and increased returns on innovation. We start from the fact that the U.S. already has one of the most open economies in the world, in large part because of decisions made decades ago and supported by 12 presidents, six Democrats, six Republicans. Our average applied tariff is less than 1.5%. 50% of all US imports come in duty free. And we don't use regulations as a disguised barrier to trade. But when we look abroad, we see markets that are shielded by higher tariffs and opaque and slanted regulatory systems. With the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we can level the playing field by removing barriers to those markets, raise standards in those markets, and as a result, increase our export-related jobs, which pay up to 18% more on average than non-export-related jobs. 
Right now, we compete with low-wage countries all over the world. TPP will open some of the largest and fastest-growing markets to made-in-America manufactured goods, agricultural products, and services. And by raising standards in other countries, TPP will help level the playing field for American businesses, workers, farmers, and ranchers. But there's something broader at issue in whether and when TPP moves forward, and that's the rules-based system itself. That system helped Japan and Europe rebuild after the Second World War, allowed developing countries, such as South Korea and Brazil, become emerging markets. It helped lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And here at home, successive rounds of trade liberalization is estimated to have added $13,000 in purchasing power per American household. But we cannot and should not take that system for granted because that system is under attack as more statist and mercantilist alternatives are being promoted abroad while there are calls for isolationism and protectionism here at home. From our perspective, it's vitally important that we maintain and strengthen the rules-based system where every country has certain rights, where all countries are expected to play by the same rules. And if they don't, where there's a fair and equitable resolution of disputes, where big countries can't just push little ones around. That system is key to maintaining a stable and prosperous Asia-Pacific region. And it's also key to ensuring that the global economy works for all Americans. It's critically important that we not just sit on the sidelines, but proactively shape the global economy in a way that reflects those interests. If the United States were to turn inward, the results would be economically devastating. History has proven beyond a doubt that protectionism doesn't work. Raising tariffs on our trading partners would only lead those countries to respond in kind and block our exports. That is a trade war, and we know that no one wins in a trade war. Turning to protectionism wouldn't increase employment here, it would reduce it. It wouldn't boost economic growth, it would retard it at best and drive the economy into recession at worst. And we know this from experience. In 1930, Congress passed and President Hoover signed the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act, which essentially walled off the United States from imports. Hoover's view was that this was essential for an era in which he believed Americans could not compete against low-wage countries in Europe. The thinking was that raising tariffs would lead to a resurgence in agriculture and manufacturing employment in the United States, but in fact, the opposite happened. We wound up with many fewer jobs. We may have had a sizable trade surplus, but we also had the Great Depression. And not only did high tariffs worsen the Great Depression, but they contributed to the decline of the global economy, which led in turn to the rise of nationalism in Europe and Asia. As President Reagan once said, protectionism will not open markets to US products, but will close them. He said it would mandate the United States violate many of the most basic rules of international trade and expose our most productive farms and industries to retaliation by other nations. The economic stakes in isolationism are clear, and so are the strategic stakes. Rejecting TPP would undermine US leadership, not only in the Asia Pacific region, but around the world. Our, our, our allies couldn't help but question whether we had the will to make good on our commitments. As Singapore's Prime Minister Lee put it, if you're not prepared to deal when it comes to cars and services and agriculture, can we depend on you when it comes to security and military arrangements? In fact, now more than ever, it's important we move ahead with the approval of TPP. Earlier this week, I was reading a piece on the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, and the author was describing his sentiment after participating in a discussion of 
the impact of Brexit on Europe. And he said, the fate of the entire post-war order hangs in the balance, and with it, the prospects for democracy worldwide. Without vigorous American leadership, the prospects are not bright. Between the migrant crisis and internal challenges, there's a serious risk that Europe will be preoccupied, at least for some time. We cannot afford a self-inflicted wound to American leadership at the same time. Now, the good news is that I meet, as I meet with members of Congress, they're increasingly appreciating the benefits of the agreement and the costs of delay. And those costs of delay are high. We're already seeing our market share in priority products eroded by other countries who already have free trade agreements in place. The Peterson Institute's estimated that a one-year delay in putting TPP into effect would impose a $94 billion cost on the U.S. economy. That equates to about a $700 tax on every American household. And moreover, if we don't get it done soon, the other Asia-Pacific countries aren't just going to sit around and wait for us. They'll move on. As New Zealand's Prime Minister Key put it, these economies aren't going to stand still. Beijing will step in and fill the void. So the choice isn't between TPP and the status quo. It's between TPP and what's likely to evolve in the absence of TPP. As other countries move forward with their own preferential market access, our businesses stand to see their market share in these key countries shrink rather than expand. And instead of seeing our rules put in place, we'll face adverse implications for the free flow of data and the integrity of the internet, for disciplining subsidies and state-owned enterprises, and for cooperating against counterfeit medicines and consumer goods. Today, our country has a choice. We can play a leadership role in writing the rules of the road for 40% of the global economy, or we can leave that job to others whose values and interests don't necessarily align with ours. Our failure to move forward would weaken us economically and would undermine American leadership. Cato's report is an important contribution to this debate providing further evidence of how valuable TPP will be to the businesses, workers, farmers, and ranchers in the United States and to America's leadership in the world's fastest growing region. And we're grateful to Cato for their support uh, of this agreement for moving forward with its ratification. Thanks very much for having me, and I'm happy actually to take questions uh, for as long as I can. Thank you. Yes. Well, I, I think you put your finger on it. I think regulatory sovereignty is, is very important for all countries. We wouldn't give up our regulatory sovereignty. No other country would give up theirs. Uh, but we have a process here when we uh, pursue regulation uh, that is open and transparent, where the public can provide comments, where draft regulations are put out uh, for those comments, and where regulators have to take those comments into consideration. And so a lot of what we're trying to do through TPP and our other trade initiatives is help encourage other countries to have more transparent and open processes. Uh, we're not going to compromise uh, our uh, regulatory sovereignty, nor will they compromise 
theirs, but if it's a more open process where we can make sure everybody can participate in it, we have confidence that we'll end up with a, a better regulatory practice. Yes, gentleman waving his hand. There we go. Thank you. Seems to me that you said you have thousands of uh, tariffs on exports in the United States, and yet my understanding from reading the Constitution is that exports are forbidden to have tariffs on them. These 18,000 taxes are the tariffs that other countries have on our exports. So for our non-FTA countries, these are the tariffs that we currently face. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, so the gentleman here in the fourth row. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about where we are uh, with Congress and TPP, especially relating to biologics and the financial services uh, issue. And then uh, if you could speak to the Brexit uh, a little bit. I know you met with Commissioner Malmstrom yesterday, and I was wondering um, if, given the state of the European Union, a, a TTIP deal is still possible this year. So in terms of the status of TPP uh, with Congress, uh, we are continuing to consult with the uh, leadership of Congress and the leadership of uh, the Trade Committees, Ways and Means Committee, and Finance Committee um, uh, to determine the best way to move forward. We are, at the same time, working to resolve outstanding issues. Uh, uh, we've been working with the dairy sector, and they're uh, now supportive of the agreement. With uh, pork producers, they're now supportive of the agreement. There's been a lot of very good work done between Treasury and the regulators on the financial services data flow and data localization uh, issue. And I think where that is heading and has, has basically been uh, uh, resolved in a, in a positive way, and uh, we're seeing uh, that come to a close. Uh, that leaves, of course, uh, biologics uh, as a very important, uh, outstanding issue. And we're continuing to consult with industry and with uh, uh, the Chairman Hatch and others in Congress to try and find a way forward on that as well. I think on, uh, on, on Brexit, um, I did see Commissioner Malmstrom uh, this week when she was, uh, when she was here. Uh, and that's part of our ongoing negotiation. Our teams are meeting almost constantly now. Uh, we're seeing each other every few, couple or a few weeks. Uh, our chief negotiators are seeing each other regularly. The teams are meeting. We have another formal round uh, coming up as well. And we're making good accelerated progress, I'd say, over the last eight months uh, in terms of, of, uh, of resolving issues. Obviously, Europe has a lot on its plate at the moment between Brexit, uh, the migrant crisis, uh, a rising level of Euroscepticism across um, uh, Europe. We hope that they have the necessary focus and political will to be able to take the, uh, the necessary decisions to be able to reach an agreement. Our goal remains uh, to do everything we can to reach an agreement this year. Len, and then I'll go to the gentleman up there. Hi, um, I, it, would it be accurate to characterize the, uh, the, the data fix as being in two parts? You have the, the treasury part that deals with you know, the, the, um, the, the trade and services agreement, and then there are some TPP countries that are not uh, covered by, by that. Um, could you talk a little bit about um, you know, what you'll do to, uh, to get those countries? How receptive have they been to living up to the terms of, of the uh, treasury proposal? 
Well, we're currently having conversations uh, ourselves, uh, uh, Treasury, with uh, the industry and to make sure we are on the same page in terms of the way forward uh, on this issue. And we've made it clear that in this, as in other areas, uh, we're engaged with our TPP uh, partners as part of the implementation effort to make sure we're doing whatever we need to do to address any outstanding concerns. And this will be one of the issues I imagine we'll be engaging uh, with some of our TPP partners on as well. Yes, the gentleman in the fourth row. Yeah, I wanted to ask, the, the US ITC report, is a, if those of you haven't seen it, is an enormous comprehensive report, 800 pages, and you know, full of uh, assessments of various pieces and with lots of positives for the American economy unit. Um, but I just, there's one sort of bottom line number that's in there that uh, sort of feeds into the negativism about trade in the US economy. I just wanted to ask you how you respond to that when it comes up in public, since this is an official government report which is that it shows a very slight uh, decrease, increase in the U.S. trade deficit. In other words, our imports rise a little bit more than our exports in the, in the bottom line. Our income grows, wages go up, and so you say employment goes up. Uh, but there is this very slight, I mean tiny, decrease in our trade surplus or increase in our trade deficit. And that, you know, that one little point would be something that critics of the thing could take and run with in the way that we've seen in the political debate this year. So I'm curious how you and your official role respond to that in terms of overall assessment of the agreement. Thank you for raising that because it's actually important to clarify. That was not a conclusion of the report. That was an assumption of the report. So the report assumes that the trade deficit remains static as a percentage of GDP. And since GDP is expected to grow, then the trade deficit itself is expected to grow. So they take that as one of the base assumptions of the model. And what it points to is that these studies, whether it's the Peterson Institute or ITC study, and they, both institutions, I think, put a, a tremendous amount of work into it. And I think they're very worthwhile uh, studies. But models have their limitations. And there are assumptions that are made that are sometimes conflated with, uh, with, with conclusions there. But thank you for, for giving me a chance to clarify that. Uh, yes, gentleman in the back, and then woman here in the fourth row. Hi, Ambassador. Um, I just wanted to ask about sort of the context of the foreign policy objectives that might be tied up with the TPP. I wondered if you could speak to that. Uh, especially as your office is under the executive branch and attempting to enforce in some way political policy for the nation, right? So we have a history of all of these, these merchant republics, right? We go back to Athens. We go through Amalfi under the Byzantines. We go through the independent Italian maritime republics, uh, the Dutch, the British, so on and so forth. But none of them have necessarily the, the greatness of population and natural resource that, that we in this country do, ostensibly to exploit ourselves and to develop our own economic interests here at home. And so I'm wondering to what extent you see the TPP as being able to benefit both us as a nation that's attempting to derive value from trade around the world and also a nation that's, that's given such a, a great wealth of natural productivity in terms of our, our population and our resources. Uh, so let me, let me take that in, in two parts. First, uh, the foreign policy question you asked and then uh, perhaps the economic strategy piece. You know, on the foreign policy side, first, it's our view that trade agreements, first and foremost, must be 
justified on their economic grounds. The impact that they have on, on growth, on the strength of the middle class, on wages, on jobs here in the United States. Uh, but there is no doubt that TPP also has tremendous strategic benefits and foreign policy uh, implications. And we see that across the region in Asia. That, and I, I, I cited Prime Minister Lee and, and Prime Minister Ki as, as two leaders who've spoken out about that, but other leaders have as well. These countries, we're a Pacific power. These countries very much want us to be involved in their lives. They want us to be embedded and committed to the region. And they see TPP as the most concrete manifestation of that commitment and a commitment that has broader spillover effects into political, security, strategic issues. And that's why when we, when we uh, hear from leaders in the region and others in the region, uh, they, are, uh, they very much are focused on us delivering on TPP because they say that if we don't, it'll be a mortal wound to our leadership in the region. And uh, this is a critically important region to our own economic well-being, but we also have broader strategic uh, uh, issues at, at risk there as well. I think on your, your second question, we are blessed with a, uh, uh, a large country with great natural resources. And we have so many other strengths going for us. Our, our entrepreneurial culture, um, our uh, skilled workforce, uh, our infrastructure, even though it needs to be improved, but we do have infrastructure. Be our trade agreements are in some ways the final piece of the puzzle that can help drive even more economic activity to the United States. I've had lots of companies come through my office, uh, many European companies, who've said some version of the same story, which is that between all of those strengths in the US, the rule of law, the entrepreneurial culture, the skilled workforce, now the abundant sources of affordable, cleaner energy, if we are able to complete TPP and TTIP and put them into place, we'll have free trade with 2 thirds of the global economy. And that makes the US the production platform of choice, the place where people want to put their next factory, their next facility, to serve not just the wide and very attractive US market, but for export to Latin America, to Asia, to Europe. And we're right on the cutting edge of being able to deliver on that. And that's why this is so important. This is not just about improving exports and improving trade. It's about also drawing investments and ec economic activity uh, to the US as well. Uh, there's a woman in the fourth row here. Thank you. Um, you've been very specific with the TTIP about promoting the American Procedures Act to the EU. What kind of administrative reforms are you expecting in the TPP states along the same lines? Uh, we're not trying to export the Administrative Procedures Act to, um, uh, uh, to any other country. Uh, I think Europe, for its own reasons, has been going through a process of looking at uh, regulatory reform. Uh, they have an initiative underway at the Commission called Better Regulation um, that moves in the direction of increasing transparency, uh, participation, accountability. Those are the sort of principles that we have put out there, that we think a regulatory system should be transparent, should be participatory, where a wide range of stakeholders should, from whether it's a uh, businesses or labor or NGOs or individuals, civil society, be able to provide input uh, into the regulatory process, and where regulators ultimately have to make decisions based on science and evidence. 
That's what we're looking for. Uh, I think the European Union, for its own reasons, is moving in a similar direction, and we're hopeful that TTIP can help uh, institutionalize that as well. Uh, yes, and then I'll come back over there. Thanks, Ambassador, and thanks for bringing home a very strong TPP agreement. Um, could you talk a little bit about the challenges you face uh, on trying to get TPP through the Congress and other important issues you're working on when uh, leading presidential candidates, including from the president's party, are uh, on an, seem to be on an anti-trade and anti-TPP uh, agenda, however well-founded? Thanks. Yeah, you know, look, I, I think. First of all, trade votes have, and you know this from your experience, trade votes have always been difficult. Um, we've really had robust trade politics here since NAFTA so for more than 20 for more than 20 years. Um, and this particular political environment, uh, uh, trade is playing a, perhaps a, 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 a more significant role than I think people expected. Um, I think the good news is, as I'm up on the hill talking to individual members of Congress, and I. I'm basically up there. Whenever I'm in the country I'm and they're here, I'm up there meeting with them uh, individually or in small groups. They fundamentally are making their decision on TPP based on the impact of the agreement on their constituents and stakeholders they care about. And as we walk through the agreement with them and they learn about what's in the agreement that's of value to their constituents and stakeholders, um, uh, we are finding a very receptive a uh, very receptive audience. So I feel confident that at the end of the day, as we consult and work with the leadership of the House and Senate on what the most uh, conducive window of opportunity might be for taking up uh, TPP, that the support will ultimately be there. One more? I think there was a gentleman here on, do you still have a question on the? Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Harvey John from Adele News Service. It's just along the same line. Um, what, can, can you just um, talk a little bit more about the public sentiment against free trade and also the, uh, the presidential candidates, um, they are uh, the opposition to TPP? Well, look, as I said in my, in, in my remarks, I think there is a lot of very understandable uh, concern out there. After 15 years of, of wage stagnation, uh, widening, uh, income inequality, uh, there is a degree of, of economic anxiety out there that you're seeing uh, both in the United States but also elsewhere around the world. I think where the debate comes down to is what to do about it. And as, as I've laid out, our view is very much that if you do nothing or you close yourself to the world or you put up walls of protectionism, you are going to make the situation worse. If you're proactive about using our trade tools and our trade agreements to shape globalization, to open other markets. Since we're at 1.5% average tariff and Vietnam has a 70% tariff on our cars and a 55% you know, tariff on our machinery and a 35% tariff on our chemicals and a 40% tariff on our poultry, if we can eliminate those tariffs, we're creating net new opportunities for American workers and farmers uh, to uh, produce here and sell there. And if at the same time we can raise standards in these other markets um, to level the playing field, make sure that they've got um, decent intellectual property rights, uh, that make sure that we're raising uh, labor and environmental standards, then we have a, 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 we have a, we are confident that our businesses, our workers, our farmers can compete and win if it's a fair and level playing field. And that's what 
being proactive about trade agreements means. That's what the, our trade strategy is really all about. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.